You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. I have truly looked forward to this new series that we are going to be starting, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis. We are going to go through the entire book tonight. So obviously I can't go into too much detail, but what I'm trying to do in this series is give us a snapshot of what the book is about, why it is written, who it's written to. The more we can answer those questions, the more we should be able to understand what is going on and why it is going on. And you need to remember that the the Bible is one story altogether. There's no other book that you would maybe go to the Uh, go to half-price books or go to Barnes & Noble, you would grab no other book, whether it was a uh, a mystery story or any type of novel. You wouldn't take it home and think, I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 10 tonight, and then I'll read a little bit of chapter 2 tomorrow, and then maybe I'll read all of chapter 3 the next day. We wouldn't do that. We would start from the beginning, and we would go all the way to the end. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way you can read the Bible. Certainly, it is all good no matter where you read it. But it is very possible, and I think it is beneficial to start from Genesis and read it all the way through Revelation. And I'm hoping that this series is going to show us, um, not only as we go through these book by book, but that they stay in our memory of how each and every book fits together, and it all is for one purpose, which is to point us to Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ in Genesis? That's where you need to ask. Uh, that's what you need to ask yourself. Where is Jesus in Exodus? Where is He in all of these different minor prophet books and Psalms and Proverbs? You will find Him. All of it is leading up to that point and to that main uh, subject of this entire book here that we call the Bible. So I hope that you have a notebook. I hope that you have a pen and that you would write down any questions that you may have. We are going to be reading uh, several passages as we go throughout. And again, we can't uh, go into detail in everything, but I hope to touch on a a little bit from every single chapter in every book that we go through uh, and that we can grasp exactly what it means and why it is written. So first of all, let's just go over some basic facts of Genesis here. Uh, It was written... And of course, this is, this is kind of an estimate here, but it was written around 1430 B.C., 1430 B.C., and it covers a time period of approximately 4004 B.C. to 1805 B.C., so written in 1430. And it covers a time period of 4004 B.C. to 1805 B.C. Now, if you were on our Facebook page, I uploaded a graphic of a lot of these key things that I'm going through. So you can follow along with that. And if you miss anything in the notes, you'll be able to look at that as well. The author is Moses, uh, and he is the author, of course, of the first five books of the Bible. And who is the audience? Who is he writing to originally when he writes the book of Genesis? And of course, we know this to be the nation of Israel. Um, It's important to remember who books are written to to begin with. Uh, Now, of course, there is something that that anybody can take from the Bible, but some books are written to entire nations. Some are uh, cities, some are churches, some are uh, just one specific person, Uh, but it is 
interesting to look into that and it helps you answer some questions. In this case, it's the entire nation of Israel. Now, Genesis can be divided into two parts, and those two parts are connected by a very pivotal story in Genesis chapter 12. Part 1 is chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 11 is part 1, and this is talking about, and this gives stories about God and the entire world in chapters 1 through 11. Part 2 is from chapters 12 to 50, and that is really focusing in on God and one family, the family of Abraham. We also know these people as the patriarchs, many people call them, uh, especially when we're talking about uh, Israel's 12 sons or Jacob's 12 sons. So let's go ahead and talk about part number one first, chapters 1 through 11. And we're going to break that down into different parts as well. So let's start with chapters 1 through 3. What are chapters 1 through 3 about? Well, first of all, we see that God creates the universe in six days and he rests on the seventh day. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't take time to argue God's existence. It, it assumes his existence. God has always been. He has no beginning, no end. Uh, when it's talking about in the beginning, it's talking about in the beginning of time that God created. Uh, so he created time in verse 1. He created space in verse 1. He created matter in verse 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And here in verse 4, we have the first mentioning of a word that is extremely important in Genesis. And God saw the light that it was good. I want you to circle that. And in fact, seven times in Genesis chapter 1, God uses that word good. It is very important. You're going to see it throughout the rest of the book. So in chapter 1, verse 4, God saw that it was good. In verse 10, and God saw that it was good. At verse 12, and God saw that it was good. The fourth time he says it in verse 18. The fifth time he says it in verse 21. The sixth time he says it in verse 25. And the seventh time he says it in verse 31. It's on this sixth day that God really makes his, his crowning creation and he calls them man. Uh, and we see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why did God create man? And he didn't just create man. He created man in his own image and after his likeness, the Bible says. So first of all, the reason that God made man is because uh, he wanted for man to care for the rest of creation. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 5. But more importantly and more amazingly, and we talked about this this morning, the second reason that God made man was so that we could fellowship with him. God made man so that he could fellowship with us. And look at something very important that happens in chapter 1, verse 27. And uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, and male and female created he them. And God blessed 
them. That is a very key theme throughout the entire book of Genesis. In fact, I strongly encourage you this next time, whenever it is that you read through Genesis, that you mark down all the times that the word bless, blessed, or blessings is in the book. Highlight it in some way so that it jumps off the page. But God blessed them in verse 28. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. After God creates man, and we start to move into Genesis chapter 2, we see again in verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day. I'm going to try to point out all these different times that I see the word blessed through here without taking up too much time. But as we can see, after man is created, man is then presented with a choice in chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So what is this choice that man is presented with? Well, on one hand, man has the choice to trust God's definition of good and evil. From the very beginning, we saw it seven times when God created something in in his heart and in his mind. He says, that is what is good. And now we have a choice that is presented to man. You can either trust what God says is good or evil, or you can choose what you believe is good and evil for yourself. And at this point, it's very simple. What is good is to obey God. What is good is to do what he told us to do as far as taking care of the garden and for Adam to take care of his wife. That is what is good. What is evil would be to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that is the, the one thing that you are not supposed to do. So that is the choice that they have. And of course, we see in chapter 3 that the serpent tempts Eve to disobey God's command. He questions what God said. Did God, didn't God say something along the lines of, you can't eat of any of the trees? And then she says, no, it's just that one tree that we can't eat of. And what does, he say to, what does he say to her in verse number five of chapter three? For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve disobey. They take of the fruit and the biggest destruction and, and the biggest consequence that comes because of that is fellowship between God and man is broken. And that is always the consequence for sin. Sin always breaks fellowship between us and God. It always brings separation between man and God. Holy God cannot fellowship with sin and sinful man. And we're going to see that throughout the next few books of the Bible as well. So now notice with me that when before man sinned, God had blessed man. Well, after sin, Now man is cursed. The serpent is cursed in Genesis 3, verse 14. The ground is cursed in Genesis 3, 17. Man is cursed in 16 through 19 of of chapter 3, and you can pick out little things here and there. Man is cursed by sin. He's cursed by sorrow. He's cursed by toil and pain and eventually death. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. 
and uh, more devastatingly, Adam and Eve are banished from God's presence in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Before this all happens, though, something very important takes place in chapter 3, verse 15. And it shows us the incredible grace of God. As soon as man sins, God already has a plan in place to redeem man again, to bring fellowship back, to restore that fellowship again. Look what he says in verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here we have the very first prophecy of Jesus Christ that will one day come. And he is going to defeat the sin that was now in the world. Uh, he is going to defeat the serpent. He was going to defeat Satan. And the seed, or in this case, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, would be bruised. And that is a beautiful foretelling of Isaiah chapter 53. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. That leads us to chapter 4 through 11. And it's a very sad section of the Bible. Now that sin has entered into the world, we see that humanity just spirals down further and further and further away from God. Cain kills Abel after God warns him not to give in to temptation in uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. But it's amazing to see that even though sin is still in the world, even though they do not have that direct access to God's presence, God is still speaking to man. Why would he do that? Because God wants fellowship with man. He wants that fellowship to be restored. He's still speaking to Cain, even while he is having these sinful thoughts and uh, these, these murderous thoughts in his mind. Then we're told about a man named, named Lamech at the end of chapter 4. Lamech is the first man who takes multiple wives. Uh, he not only takes two wives, but he, he kills two people. Some people believe he did this just because he was, a, he was a brute of a man. Other people believe he did so in self-defense. But either way, he seems to... He doesn't really seem to care about what God has to say about it. He just kind of goes and justifies himself. He says, yeah, I've, I've killed uh, somebody, at least one person, possibly even two people. Uh, but because I did it in self-defense, if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, truly I, would be, uh, truly I would be avenged seventy and sevenfold. And what we're seeing here is that man is continuing to define what they believe is good in their own mind. Uh, it's, it's not right to kill people. Even if it's in uh, self-defense, that's not something that we should be looking to do. But he goes and he justifies it in his mind. Now, there is a little bit of hope at the end of chapter 4. Man are calling upon the name of the Lord. So there is still hope. There are still men in the earth that are trying their best to follow what God says is good and avoid what he says is evil. That leads us to chapter 5. Now, we're going to come back to chapter 5 in a little bit because when you first read chapter 5, it looks like it's just a, a genealogy uh, from Adam all the way leading up to Noah. And it's very easy when you get to genealogies just to read over them. We're going to see the importance of it when we look at chapter 6. In chapter 6, and again, what are we talking about? We're talking about how humanity is spiraling down further and further away from God. Well, now in chapter 6, we see 
angels are beginning to have uh, relationships with the daughters of men. And uh, it's, a mess comes from that. There's giants in the earth. After, uh, also after that in verse 4, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And then look at what it says in verse 5. This is incredible. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So you have your actions, you have what you're thinking about doing, and then you have what you're thinking about thinking about doing. All of that was only evil continually, the Bible says. So that's where chapter 5 really comes into importance here. God made man upright. He made Adam and Eve perfect. And he told them, all you need to do is trust me. It is good for you to obey. It is good for you to follow. It's good for you just to do the job that I made you to do. Just don't take from that tree. But they go ahead and they do it. And now look at what happens in chapter 5. You have Adam who goes to Seth and then to Enos and then Canaan and then Mehaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah is where we are right now in chapter 6. So think about this with me. It only took 10 generations, 1,000 years approximately, from man to go from perfection to complete and utter perversion. That is what happens with sin. When we let sin into our lives, it is always going to drag us down further and further and further and further. So God decides he's going to have to destroy the earth. And he says that in verse 7. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, here's the question. How can God destroy the earth? How will God destroy the earth and also keep his promise about Eve's descendant? How can he destroy all of mankind and still keep that promise? Well, he's going to have to save somebody. And it says there in verse 8, but Noah found, and look at what that word is, and I encourage you to circle that as well. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God has always saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that, and the first example of it is here. God saves Noah. He sends the flood in Genesis chapter 7 and 8. And for, a, and for a little bit now, uh, now that the waters have receded, look at what happens um, in chapter 9 and verse 1. And God, what? God blessed Noah and his sons. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Noah seems to be doing well. He comes off of, that with his, off of that ark with his family. He makes an altar. And now God renews the, the, uh, the garden promise to Noah. What did he first do to Adam in chapter 1, verse 28, I believe it is? He says, and God blessed them and he told them, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to, be I want you to multiply. Well, now he says that same thing to Noah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. However, it doesn't take very long. We see that Noah too falls into sin. In verse, and uh, in, in starting in verse, I believe, uh, let me see here, in verse 20, Noah plants a vineyard, 
He drinks of the wine. He becomes drunken. He's, he's naked in his tent, and something happens between he and Ham. And where God had blessed in chapter 9, verse 1, now there is this horrible sin again, not very, not very long after God had just delivered Noah. And again in verse 25, we see that the curse has come back again. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. Servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. However, there is still a blessing. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Humanity again spirals down and away from God. You see in chapter 11 that the Tower of Babel is conceived in verse 1 through 4. So God sees this and he scatters all of humanity. And that brings us to the end of part one. What is the message of part one? Well, what I see from it is God keeps giving man opportunities to do what is good. But man keeps doing what is wrong. Man keeps doing what is evil. However, throughout all of this, God remains faithful to keep his promise that he made to Eve, to keep his promise that he made to all of mankind that he would one day restore that fellowship again. He wants to bless man. He wants to be with man and have a relationship with man. The question is, how is he going to do this? Now, God, of course, has this all planned out, but we have to keep reading to see what this plan is from God. So we see here in part two, chapters 12 through 50. A genealogy is given in chapter 10, um, and it, it talks about the genealogy of mankind after the scattering of Babel. Don't get confused about that, uh, because it says in chapter 10, in verse uh, 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. But then we start in chapter 11, and it talks about how the whole earth is in one language and one speech. What it's talking about in chapter 10 was how, how everybody was scattered, and then in chapter 11, it's going into detail. How did that scattering take place? So don't get confused about that. But this genealogy is very important because it leads up to one specific man and it introduces us to a man named Abram. And here is our pivotal story that is going to switch from part one to part, uh, to part two in chapter 12, verse one through three. And now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. What is God's plan? Well, he extends his garden promise now to Abram, just as he did to Noah. Now he does so to Abram. But he says, here is my plan, Abram. My plan is to bless all nations through you and through your family. And because of this promise, because of this covenant that is being made, this blessing that is given, the rest of the Old Testament is all going to be focused on this man's family. Uh, so this is not only a pivotal story for Genesis, but really for the rest of the Old Testament. So let's talk about chapters 12 through 50. Really what we see here in these chapters 
as it focuses in on first Abraham and his generation, and then it talks about uh, Isaac and his generation, and then Jacob and Esau and their generation, and then the 12 sons, really all we're going to see over and over and over again is how each generation fails to trust God to come through on his promise. Every single one fails in one way or another to take God at his word. They have to learn, may I say, the hard way before they learn to put their faith and trust in him. We see this in Abram first. Abram, uh, even after he was just told, I am going to make of thee a great nation. Well, there's going to be a couple different um, deductions that have to come from that. Well, first of all, that's going to mean that Abram is going to live and survive until he has a family. And then also, this isn't just a family that he's going to have. He's going to have a son. He has to have a son. But look at what Abram does. He goes down to Egypt and he fears for his life. So he lies to the Egyptians about Sarah. In fact, he does this twice. He does this in Genesis chapter 12 and he does this in Genesis chapter 20. He's not trusting that the Lord is going to take care of him. Abram and Sarah, a little uh, later in chapter 16, decide that the Lord's plan is not coming together quick enough for them. Uh, scattered throughout here, you see stories of how uh, Abram is dealing with Lot and how sin uh, continues to plague this family. There's an amazing um, story in here in chapter 14 where he comes to uh, to have an interaction with a king of Salem called Melchizedek. And what does Melchizedek do to Abraham? It says in chapter 14, verse 19, he blessed him. Uh, so we see that the blessing from God comes to Abram even during this time. But in chapter 16, Sarah says to Abram in verse 2, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. And we know that she sends him in to Hagar. This is after God had already repeated his promise to Abram several times that I am going to give you a son through Sarah. Uh, he says it in chapter 13, verse 5. He says it in chapter uh, 15, verse 5. He says it in chapter 15, verse 18. And still Abram and Sarah will not trust. However, God still forgives him and continues to stay faithful to his promise. And he does this by giving Abram the, coven, uh, the covenant of circumcision in chapter 17, verse 10 through 14. He says, I have chosen you to be a peculiar nation, and this is going to be the symbol of that. You are going to be different. You are going to be my people, and I am going to be your God. And he gave him that covenant. Sarah then gives birth to Isaac in chapter 21, verse 1 through 5. There's the incredible test that comes to Abram in chapter 22, where God, even now after he has given Isaac the promised son, he says, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him. Uh, and the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abram had faith that God was going to keep his promise. He's finally learned his lesson. He's had to learn it in a lot of ways the hard way. Um, but now, and it says in Hebrews 11, he even, he even believed that if he actually killed Isaac, that God would be able to raise him up from the dead. And because he believed God, the Bible says he, it was counted unto him for righteousness. And especially because of this act of obedience of Abram actually being willing to go through with sacrificing his son, God again renews and reminds Abraham of his covenant promise in chapter 22, verse 17. He says that in blessing, I will bless thee. 
In multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Can we see a pattern that is going on here? Man keeps doing wrong. God keeps making it good. Um, man keeps being unfaithful. God stays faithful because he wants to bless mankind. He wants to have a fellowship with man. Then we see that the generation shifts now. We go to uh, the generation of Isaac. He starts strong, and he actually does trust God for children, unlike his father. And we see in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21, um, let me see here. Uh, and Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So instead of looking at doing it another way, like Abram and Sarah did with, with Hagar, he entreats the Lord. So it looks like we're off to a good start here. God extends his covenant promise to Isaac in uh, chapter 26, verse 4. Uh, he tells him as well, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make, uh, make sure that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, just like I told your father. But then we see that Isaac starts to make some same mistakes. He goes down and lies to Abimelech, the same lie that he told uh, that his father told to Pharaoh and in chapter 20 as well. He lies about Rebekah in chapter 26, verse 6 through 11. Let that be a lesson to us parents. Whatever we do, our children are watching and they are probably going to do as well and if not so, in excess. Isaac seeks to bless Esau rather than Jacob when they do end up having children, they're twins, and God makes it clear to him the older is going to serve the younger, but what does Isaac do? He chooses to try to bless Esau rather than Jacob because he loved Jacob less. So what is this, again, what is this pattern that we're seeing? Man, here's what God says is good. This is what you need to do. This is what I am telling you to do. And man says, I don't like that idea. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so what happens here is this family starts to be torn apart. Genesis, or in generation chapter 3, now we see Jacob and Esau. Jacob steals Isaac's blessing. Again, rather than trusting in God, he goes behind his back with his mom's help to steal the blessing. And it's incredible, though, that uh, because it was God's plan, uh, God does extend his covenant promise to Jacob. Uh, first, he does this through Isaac in chapter 28, verse 3 and 4. And uh, the Bible says, And God Almighty bless thee. Isaac is talking to Jacob. God Almighty bless thee. Make thee fruitful and multiply, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham. But then God comes and he uh, gives the promise to Isaac through himself in that same chapter 28 and verse 14. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So what does Jacob do to repay this kindness and this promise that God has given to him. Well, we see in the next three chapters here, chapter 29, chapter 30, and chapter 31, that Jacob takes four wives while only loving one, and they get into this contest of who can bear the most children, and this family, again, keeps on being torn apart more and more and more. And it leads up to the point where God physically intervenes and wrestles with Jacob. Now, 
this is this in no way was a physical contest. So, but there was there was a wrestling match that took place. But come on, God could have taken Jacob out at any point if he wanted. But he was trying to teach Jacob a lesson. Jacob had a pattern in his life of not having faith. He had a pattern in his life of doing what he wanted to do and doing it his way rather than trusting in God. And it comes up to the point where he has this interaction with God and God has to humble Jacob, defeat Jacob, and he does so uh, in in this interaction by asking Jacob, what is thy name? He says, I want to know what is your name. Now, God knew Jacob's name, but Jacob, we know that the meaning is supplanter. It means schemer. It means trickster. So for Jacob to come and say in chapter 32 uh, and in verse uh, 27, and he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. You know what I see here? I see a confession. He's saying, I am a schemer. I am a trickster. I am one who doesn't have a lot of faith. I am one who keeps on messing up in my life. And God seeks in this wrestling match because Jacob isn't getting it yet. He seeks to leave Jacob, but Jacob clings onto him. And what does he say? I will not let you go except thou what? Except thou bless me. Jacob understood how important this blessing was. And that's when he says, what is thy name? I'm going to, I I want to know before I bless you, I want to know what is your name? And he says, this is exactly who I am. I'm a trickster. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a schemer. And he says, because you said that thy name shall be no more called Jacob. It's going to be Israel. Just as Abram was given the covenant of circumcision, now it seems like Jacob is given his own special reminder, not only the halt that he had in his thigh for the rest of his life of this interaction with God, but also a change in his name. Israel means uh, one who wrestles with God, one who has power with God. We see here not long after And I find it incredible that Jacob still truly hasn't learned his lesson. I don't see in chapter 33, especially because of something that he says to Esau that just blows my mind. Uh, He has this interaction with Esau and you can see how he's scheming the entire way. He's keeping his favorite family back and he's sending the family that he doesn't like as much forward. Uh, so that if Esau is coming with a poor intent, they would be able to escape. But look at what he says in chapter 32, verse 30. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Why? For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Okay? So remember that. That is a big statement for him to make. I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Now he is coming to Esau. He's not trusting, it seems, that the Lord is going to deliver him out. He comes to Esau thinking Esau is going to wipe him out. So he sends all of this this caravan in front of him with all these riches and these presents to Esau. Esau asks, why have you done this? Um, And they get into this argument of if Esau is going to accept it or not. And look at what Jacob says in verse 10 of chapter 33. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. This coming from a man who actually did just have an interaction with God. Now he's talking about an interaction with man like it's the same. There's no comparison there. 
I just don't understand what is going through, but we see again that sin has damaged this family. Sin has damaged their relationship with the Lord and their ability to rationalize what God says is good and what God says is evil. God again is saying faithful. He repeats, confirms his covenant promise with Jacob in chapter 35, verse 9 through 13. Uh, and Jacob, it seems, finally learns his lesson in chapter 35. And he cleans house. He calls all of his family together and he says, he, he, God has appeared unto me. We are putting away all of our idols. We're putting away all of the false gods. We're building an altar and we are going to follow after him. Jacob has learned his lesson, but now the story is going to shift. Genesis is going to shift, and now we're starting to look at Israel's family or Jacob's family. So this is generation chapter, or, or number four now, rather. And what we see in generation chapter four is that Israel's family is living like the world. In chapter 34, Dinah commits fornication with a heathen man, and in response to this, the the sons of Israel use God's covenant of circumcision to kill all the men in the city that Dinah, uh, that Dinah went down to. They use that precious covenant to, to deceive these men, kill all of the men in the city. Then they proceed to rob and plunder the city and then enslave the women and children. Where did this come from? This is Israel's family. This is Abraham's family, the promised family that is doing this. Jacob calls them out in verse 30 of chapter 34. He says, you've troubled me. You made me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. I have been, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me. And I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And look at their response in verse 31. And they said, should he deal with our sister? as with an harlot. You know what they're saying? We're completely justified in what we did. We don't see anything wrong with what we just did. Obviously, there was much wrong with what they just did, but man continues to define good and evil for themselves. Here we have in uh, chapter, let's see, I, I believe it's chapter 36, something very important. We have a, a genealogy of Esau. Again, don't read over that. This is important for later in the book. Um, and um, when you read this generation of Esau, you see that Esau's family is actually larger than Jacob's family. Um, but basically what we're going to see throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, uh, we just talked the other day how the Jews are, uh, have Herod over them, and Herod was of the descendants of Esau. This rift in the family, the, the book of Obadiah is written to Esau and to his family uh, and to the, the family of the Edomites. So this, this chapter here in verse uh, chapter 36 is very important because it is showing uh, and it's giving a basis throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this rift between the family that has come because of deceit and, and hatred and a lack of faith on both of their parts. We continue here in chapter 37. The 12 sons or, or the, uh, the sons of Israel hate Joseph, and so they send him into slavery. Israel's plan, it appears, 
was to extend the blessing to Joseph, but now he doesn't know if he's alive in any way. And I, we, uh, some believe that he wanted to extend that blessing to Joseph because of the coat of many colors. That wasn't just uh, something that he gave to him uh, that was uh, kind of sentimental in value. It was something that was figurative. Uh, it, many believe it had a historical value to it where it would show the other brothers that he was going to be the one to take over the family business. He was going to be the one that was going to take charge once Israel was gone. Now I'm almost done and we are coming together to a head right here. And if I have done the job well, I think we're going to understand why the book ends in chapter 50 the way that it does. Again, think of what we have seen here. We see how God had made man and he made man perfect and he did so so that they could have fellowship with one another. But he gave them a choice. He didn't just want mindless drones and robots following him around in the garden. He wanted man to serve him and have fellowship by choice. They made the wrong choice. They decided, I am going to define good and evil. I want to know good and evil for myself. I'm not going to trust what God did, what God has set down. And the spiral takes place. The reset after the flood seems to be wonderful, but then the spiral again takes place. And each generation, they have failed and failed and failed to trust the Lord. Joseph is a breath of fresh air. Joseph, when we see the stories here, that even through all of his hardship, even through all of his struggles, even through all of the, the doubt that would have had a lot of justification to bring into his mind, he stayed true to the Lord. And the Bible says over and over, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And that is why he was able to make it through. We see in chapter 38, Judah is immoral with his own daughter-in-law. Uh, it just seems like every single story that is given of the failures of these men, it just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But Joseph trusts God. And because he trusts God, he's used by God to bring deliverance to this family of promise. And not only to this promised family, but he is, he is used to bring deliverance to uh, much of the known world at this time. Unfortunately, all the while that Joseph is following God and trusting God and being blessed by God, Israel and his family can't stop fighting with one another. They can't stop arguing with one another. They can't stop making a big mess of things. I find it interesting, however, that the Bible gives us that story of Judah in chapter 38. But in chapter 49, right before Israel dies. And I know we've skipped a lot there, but that's a lot of the story of Joseph, and I encourage you to read that. Right before Israel dies, he calls all of his sons in together. This is going to be an important interaction. Right before Abram died, he made it clear to Isaac, I'm passing the blessing on to you. Right before Isaac died, he made it clear, or before he had to say goodbye to, to Jacob, I am passing the blessing on to you. Now, Jacob is about to die. Israel is about to die. And he has all of his sons with him. Who is he going to bless here? Who is he going to pass this blessing on to? Who does the Lord want him to bless? And of all people, it's Judah. The man who we just read had, had a complete moral failing. But he says in chapter 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And we know that that is Jesus Christ. Israel dies, and I hope that you have followed along with me this far. 
Israel dies and the brothers become very afraid. And they start saying to themselves, now that Israel's dead, now that dad's dead, Joseph is going to enact his revenge. Now, why would they be thinking that? Well, that was kind of the family mantra. That's what that family did. Uh, whenever they didn't like something, they made it known and they made it clear. So surely that is what Joseph was going to do. So they come up to him in verse 17 of chapter 50. And they said, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. And look at what they say here. For they did unto thee what? They did unto thee evil. They're no longer trying to justify what they did. They come out and they make the confession. What we have done, how we have lived, is truly wrong. We are not going to try to sugarcoat it anymore. What we have done unto you is evil. And I believe the key verse of Genesis is Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. And it's incredible that the book ends on this note here. But as for you, well, let's start in verse 19 and, and it will lead up to that. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Listen, God is the one who's choosing here what is good and what is evil. I am not in the place of God. And that's a strange thing for Joseph to say because in this entire book, man has been putting themselves in the place of God. And look what he says in verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Can you find the two key words in that verse? I wish I had you here to interact with me. Maybe you'll put a comment on YouTube or something. Now, don't cheat and put the comment after I give it to you. But read that verse again and see if you can find the two key words. Now, we have one, two, three, four, five, six people here in the auditorium. Has anyone in here found it? Cole? Huh? No? No, that's not it. Anybody? They're, they're separate words. What have we seen a pattern of throughout the entire book? Brother James, you've been in Sunday school, so you know it already. Brother James, what are they? Good and evil. What did we start with at the very beginning? God saying, this is what is good and this is what is evil. Just trust me. Keep on doing what I tell you to do. But man says, no, I want to do what I believe is good and I don't, I'm going to redefine what is evil. So look at what Joseph says in this beautiful verse that show us really the entire purpose of the book of Genesis. He says, all, really all of this in, in Genesis would have been avoided had Adam simply trusted God's definition of good and evil. However, story after story shows us of how God's definition is being rejected and man keeps doing what they believe to be good. Yet through it all, God remains, remains faithful and he even takes the evil that man has decided to do and he uses it for his purpose to bring about good, showing us that God is always in control. That is the purpose of the entire book of Genesis. Now, it kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger here. It ends with this promised family in Egypt. How is God going to keep his covenant promise? 
uh, to a family that is now settled in a strange land. Because God made it clear the promised land is Canaan, not Egypt. So how is God going to keep his promise with this family now that they are in Egypt? We have to go through Exodus and, uh, and even into uh, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. I, I mix those up. I promise you I know, I know the Bible. Uh, but we have to go through the next five books in order to see truly how God is going to bring this plan all together. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.